Chapter 2 The Euromaidan Legacy Bogdan Andrushenko is sitting in front of me in a Kiev restaurant, reminiscing about an incident during Euromaidan on the night of the 11th of December 2013. We marched a dozen abreast up the street to the southwest. Up on Bankova Street, we encountered the National Guard. They slowly came towards us along a broad front. In the end, we faced each other head to head. We stood still, unarmed with arms linked. The feeling is hard to describe. We were vulnerable, powerless, and yet somehow invincible, like a mental iron link chain. To give in was unthinkable. We surrendered ourselves to our fate. Bogdan Andrushenko a qualified vet, served as an assistant to a member of parliament in 2013 in a Ukraine careening between East and West. He was part of the new Ukrainian power base, but was that winter gripped by the winds of a restive Kiev. By day, I was a cog in the established state machinery. By night, I was part of the popular uprising in the square. Greater cooperation with the EU had been Ukraine's official endeavour since independence, with the first agreement to that end being signed as early as 1992. For years during the 2010s, Ukraine had been negotiating a broader free trade agreement with the EU to be ratified by the Eastern Partnership Summit in Vilnius at the end of November 2013. Even the country's president, Viktor Yanukovych, the pro-Russian from Donbass, officially expressed his support for increased cooperation with the West. However, ahead of the 2013 trade agreement, Russia applied pressure, imposed a trade embargo, and demanded that Ukraine instead be part of the Eurasian Economic Union. Viktor Yanukovych succumbed on the 21st of November and announced that the EU agreement in Vilnius would not be signed. The news came as a cold shower for a Ukraine in which distrust of the president, his satrapy, and its senior ranks was already festering. A door to the free world had been ajar, and it now appeared that the president had closed it. That same day, a thousand or so young protesters gathered in central Kiev, calling for Ukraine to join the EU and demanding visa-free passage to Western Europe. It is as if Maidan, or Independent Square, was custom-made for protests. The square is a symmetrical space, an arena surrounded by stately buildings that turn in a semicircle towards what vaguely calls to mind a Roman amphitheatre, boasting a fountain and a collection of monuments commemorating the nation's origins and struggle for liberation. The stage was now occupied by students. The mood was spirited, and combative. The demonstrations went on around the clock and engagement spread. On the 24th of November, a demonstration was held that probably assembled over 100,000 participants. For the rest of the week, the protests burst in waves through central Kiev with a force and resolve that dismayed the regime. On the 30th of November, the Berkut riot police were sent in. Unprovoked, they attacked unarmed students with batons on the square and boots down the side streets. The attacks were at once bizarre and terrifying. Bogdan Andrushenko shakes his head at the memory. At first, 
the protests hadn't been against the government per se. They were students demonstrating against corruption. And the way that Yanukovych seemed to have robbed Ukraine of the agreement with the EU. Nor was it essentially East versus West, but an anti-corruption and elitism thing. But when the brutality began, they turned against the regime as a whole. There was a different atmosphere. Everything changed character. The deployment of the riot police on the 30th of November was meant to scare away the demonstrators and clear the square. Instead, it was the igniting spark that made people of all ages and backgrounds travel to the capital and join the Euromaidan. Accounts abound of how people who were normally not interested in activism or politics were, in early December, drawn into a spirit of urgent participation. The focus of the uprising shifted from the trade agreement and the EU to something primitively human. It was now that people started referring to Euromaidan as the Dignity Revolution. In December, the cold grew more bitter, as did the mood on Maidan. The demonstrations swelled and come the weekends, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians were on the move. The mood on the square was one of resolve, unity and defiant triumph. The protesters erected tents, field kitchens and barricades. Firebrand speeches were held during the evenings and artists performed. Rock bands, boys' choirs, folk singers and, not least, Eurovision winner Ruslana, who performed on several evenings. The entrenchments were beefed up and supplies flooded in. Restaurants donated food, people distributed clothes and sleeping bags, and old ladies handed out newly knitted socks to the activists. In the trade unions building, academics from Mohila University held lectures on constitutional and economic reform, and a TV studio was set up. A steady stream of vehicles and tools arrived in the square. Some of the more radical groups even had access to guns. On the 8th of December, Demonstrators led by radical nationalists pulled down the statue of Lenin on Kreshatik, Kiev's main street. It crashed to the ground and was promptly demolished by sledgehammers. Lenin suffered similar fates in several other cities. Shortly after the first morning hour of the 11th of December, just after the demonstrators had ended their customary night vigil and Bogdan Andrushenko had finished stomping around the square in the cold in a mood that he describes as subdued, resolute and thoughtful, the sentries sounded the alarm. Soldiers and security police had been seen mobilising among the government buildings to the southeast. We quickly assembled a group to stop the National Guard and protect the square until reinforcements arrived. We walked abreast, across the width of the road, up the slope towards the Parliament. The temperature had dropped to minus 11 degrees Celsius. It was Euromaidan's coldest night so far. A white armoured vehicle drove out from an official building. Further ahead, Bearcoot squads could be seen slowly advancing forward, down towards the demonstrators. At the corner of Bankova and Institutska streets, the front ranks met and stopped silently in front of each other. Hundreds of black and blue and black uniforms and black helmets arrayed against a host of activists in high-vis vests. Standing in front of Bogdan was a uniformed man. I looked him in the eye 
and saw that he was no more than around 18 years old. He looked back and simply said, I'm so fucking tired of this shit. It was a cathartic moment, and I had this powerful feeling that we'd win, that the entire regime would fall. Eventually, the church bells from St. Michael's Cloister began to rouse the city and call people to the square. The riot squad had come to a halt. Maidan filled with 15,000 activists. Time passed. After three hours of tense suspense, the troops were called back to regroup. A few hours later, the riot police had the square surrounded. They tried to breach the barricades, attacking with batons, which the activists parried with sticks and water hoses. Further up the hill by the government buildings, the barricades were cleared away, but the resistance on Maidan held until the troops were finally withdrawn later that morning. Just a normal day on the job. The confrontation became a brief act in a long, drawn-out performance, an escalation of a political drama established back at the time of independence in 1991. The Orange Revolution of 2004 was its first proper trial of strength, although it was never a revolution as such. It was a non-violent movement with broad popular support that led to a regime change with a new pair of leaders. Viktor Yushchenko and Yulia Timoshenko. But the duo soon fell out. And as a consequence, the 2010 election returned Yanukovych and his party of the regions to power. Euromaidan seemed different. It was seen in the barricades, in the making of Molotov cocktails, the self-defense groups and the occupations around the square where hospitals, soup kitchens and press centers were set up in various buildings and tents. A resistance organization emerged and was divided up into sotnis, hundreds, commando groups comprising 100 people. The scale of coordination meant that the human and moral costs of trying to evacuate the square would be high. According to historian Peter Johnson, Euromaidan was one of the largest mass movements in Ukrainian history and in post-war Europe. But unlike Poland's Solidarność, it was never formalized into a unified organization. Rather, Euromaidan was more akin to a national revivalist movement, a process of mental liberation in which everyone was welcome. Liberals, neo-Nazis, religious leaders of different confessions, nationalists and anarchists, all stood arm in arm to fight for some vaguely defined redress. They knew what they were opposed to, however, and the list was long. The EU betrayal, Russian predominance, corruption, oligarchy, extortion, lawlessness and police brutality. Three political leaders stepped up. Arseniy Yatsenyuk, from the Fatherland Party, former boxer Vitaly Klitschko from the Ukrainian Democratic Alliance for Reform, UDAR, and Ole Tianibok from the far-right Svoboda party. But when it came to the actual revolt, the leaders were participants rather than drivers. The resistance followed a logic of its own. The Maidan protests gradually grew more militarized and physically aggressive. Already early on, the government had deployed Titushki, paid provocateurs who ratcheted up the violence at times by mingling with the protesters but the resistance 
remained united. The government made its next move on the 16th of January. A bill imposing a raft of restrictions on the freedom to demonstrate, which the Party of the Regions and the Communist Party voted through Parliament the following day. One of the targets of this piece of legislation was Automaidan, the car processions that have taken centre stage in the struggle for the public domain. The new prohibition was defied, and 200,000 people soon assembled on the streets to protest against the new law. By now, activism was blossoming around the country. Between the 22nd and 27th of January, a dozen regional administrative buildings in western Ukraine were occupied. In Kiev, on the 19th of January, the quasi-military nationalist extremists in the right sector started a riot with weapons and Molotov cocktails on Rushevsky Street. In the latter half of January, reports of the first fatalities started coming in. Two dead protesters on the 22nd of January. And on the same day, the badly beaten body of activist Yuri Verbitsky was found in a woodland area. And so came the final act of Euromaidan. It opened on the morning of the 18th of February with a demonstration outside the parliament that was greeted with rubber bullets, flashbangs and batons. In Kiev, the day was to become one vast arena a violent confrontation. Activism on the square was feverish. Molotov cocktails were being churned out at an incredible pace. Bricks were unearthed and broken into small pieces to use as ammunition. Many witnesses have since talked of finding all reflection and fear of death displaced by a frantic resolve. Twenty-six people died during that day's clash with the police. On the 20th of February, the metro was closed down and the city found itself paralysed, cold, and in a mute state of war. Demonstrators mustered themselves and advanced up Institutska Street, equipped with sticks and rudimentary shields, in an attempt to drive the riot police back. It would prove to be suicidal, as the government had now cast all restraint to the four winds. Snipers started firing on protesters, who crouched behind trees and tried to circulate upwards. The film Winter of Fire shows much of the chaos that followed. We watch as a middle-aged or even elderly man stumbles to the ground where he is swiftly surrounded by a cluster of police officers who start battering him with iron batons before surging on. One stopping delivers an extra blow to the man's head and stamps on his back, breaking, perhaps, a few more of his ribs. There were also snipers to the east of the square on the Conservatory of Music, the Hotel Ukraine and other buildings. The documentary film Winter of Fire shows what a massacre can look like when not orchestrated by a Hollywood director. A man jogs up the sloping street with a stretcher to pick up a fallen protester. He stops by a tree and squats down. A shot is heard. Unceremoniously, the man drops slowly on all fours before collapsing on his side and dying over his coloured stretcher. As Bogdan recounts the riot, he occasionally falls silent. He is perspiring. And I can't tell if it's due to the summer heat in the restaurant or the memories. As the killings got worse, it was like something from another time and place. Yanukovych wasn't from Kiev. He didn't understand the city. He'd brought his friends from eastern Ukraine. 
and they were raised in a tradition of virile leadership. Kiev's open mindset was alien to him. The final days of the Euromaidan revolution ended with a death tally of over 111, 94 of whom were protesters and 17 police officers. In the days before the massacre, the Polish Minister of Foreign Affairs, Radoslav Sikorski, had visited Kiev for intense talks with both Yanukovych and the leaders of the uprising to broker a way forwards without further killing. The outcome was an agreement that led to a general election in December and the creation of a coalition government. During an evening meeting on Maidan on the 21st of February, a grave opposition politician, Vitaly Klitschko, presented the agreement as a small but significant victory. He had himself led street protests in the city in April 2013 and enjoyed public confidence during the popular uprising. But the time for compromise had passed. A young man in a camouflage jacket, Volodymyr Parasyuk from Lviv, stormed onto the podium and in an explosion of passion reminded the crowd of the dead protesters and the sacrifice of the people and declared that talks with the murderer Yanukovych were unthinkable. Our brothers have been shot, and now our leaders are shaking hands with this murderer. Shame on them! Tomorrow at ten o'clock he'll be gone, shouted Parasyuk in his despairing baritone. His emotional outcry was greeted with cheers. Shame! Shame! chanted the demonstrators at the opposition leader's negotiated settlement. Klitschko remained standing on the podium, silent, serious, and straight-backed. What is a revolution? What are its mechanisms? The logic of what forces change is difficult to grasp. But anyone who has read the classical Chinese war strategist Sun Tzu knows that the ruler's access to violence is a form of capital that must be wielded selectively, strategically, and ideally only by threats. During Euromaidan, each fatal shooting and attempt to breach the lines of protest eroded trust in the ruler and confidence in the government. The legitimacy of the regime started to crumble. Moreover, the destruction of the physical environment is an argument on its own. The state of siege that Kiev endured during these months was itself a symbol of the regime's incompetence, brutality and loss of control. Pillars of black smoke rose into the city sky. During the final days, the rubble of the pavements and the elegant edifices of state administration buildings were coated with soot and ash. The heart of this majestic city had been turned into a terrifying, alien and grey lunar landscape, its sense of doom sustained by the drums that echoed through the streets. The longer such a state continues, the harder it is to restore any notion of normalcy. Suspicion of the leadership is spread between these actors who are searching for new constellations. Every regime is dependent on a credible narrative of sustainable order a belief that rebels are really terrorists and not legitimate representatives of the people's soul. Yanukovych's regime was democratically elected, but its legitimacy was severely corroded from the uprising's very beginning, particularly in the western parts of the country. Ukraine's ambitions had been set in motion. 
The people populated a country rich in opportunity and raw materials, but poor in patience. The protests started when the move towards the West was curtailed, and when the violence erupted on the 30th of November, the course of events escalated beyond redemption. The struggle for territory became a struggle between rival narratives and their claims of righteousness. The political struggle was transformed into an emotional mobilization in which all discussion of political compromise was eventually rendered as impossible as it was irrelevant. And then, often unexpectedly and suddenly, it's all over. One narrative has imploded, another has triumphed. In the darkness of the morning of the 22nd of January, Yanukovych, with a little wheelie bag, climbed onto a helicopter in Kiev to depart the city for good. He would eventually be granted asylum in Moscow. His palatial residence north of Kiev had already been occupied by Maidanists and nationalists who rummaged through the gangster prince's ostentatious abode with curious fascination. Over the following days, Arseniy Yatsenyuk took up temporary office as prime minister. Berkut was dissolved and an order was issued for Yanukovych's arrest. The now fugitive president had already been in prison on two occasions in his youth for assault and robbery and was now back at square one, with a place in posterity as a bandit. Yanukovych, who had been democratically re-elected in 2010, would end up in the history books as a blood-stained criminal public enemy. In 2019, he was convicted of high treason in his absence. But hot on the heels of Euromaidan was the war. Already back on the 27th of February, armed pro-Russian troops took over key buildings in the Crimean capital of Simferopol. This was a part of Ukraine that had long been Russian in character and was home to a naval base strategically vital for Russia. As this took place, posts were erected around Crimea's military bases and parliament by soldiers who, lacking military insignia on their uniforms, came to be dubbed Little Green Men. It was not until December 2015 that Russian President Vladimir Putin admitted to the Russian military presence in Crimea. Before long, Russian-backed separatists in Donbass in eastern Ukraine mobilized themselves to declare independence from Ukraine. The war, which had in effect begun by now, was never declared openly, shrouded as it was in talk of democratically sanctioned autonomy. Officially, there was no formal Russian invasion either, but real and extensive Russian military intervention in the shape of soldiers and material underpinned the course of events. While Putin's support for the breakaway region's rebels won sympathy at home, it would also result in costly isolation. Over the past six years, the fighting has continued and exerted constant pressure on the Ukrainian economy. As of 2020, according to the UNHCR, the human cost for Ukraine amounted to 13,000 dead, including 3,344 civilians, along with 30,000 wounded and around 1.5 million internally displaced persons. Bogdan Andrushenko currently works as a food safety consultant. How does he look upon the legacy of the revolution in which he took part? With pride, sorrow, and a little disappointment. That's how I'd sum it up. 
I'm proud that the idea of a new Ukraine has taken root, but I feel sad that it came at such a cost with so many lives lost. And I feel disappointed that the corruption hasn't gone away and that the old guard still holds key positions. He plucks thoughtfully at a solitary crust of bread lying on his plate after our lunch. After the revolution, the Ministry of Justice oversaw a purge of Yanukovych loyalists. But they've bribed their way back into the system. It's actually less about money than about personal connections and competence. And Maidan today? On one of many similar evenings, I stroll across the square, the stage that has recovered its splendour and now seethes with boisterous joie de vivre, with street performances, rock, hip-hop dancing, and Russian acrobatics to Kalinka music. In the outdoor seating of a restaurant, young women in S&M gear perform a kind of erotic dance next to an exhibition about the murder of Ukrainians in the Gulag. Souvenir hawkers, hookers, football tricks, everything and everyone gets an audience while roaring, pimped-up cars file brazenly past on the wide Kreshatik Street and families and tourists stroll blithely along the pavements. As if the slightest show of moderation is an affront to a freedom that may never again be stifled. The party must go on.